This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 18, verse 31, through chapter 19, verse 4. It will begin on page 270 in the Bibles there in your rows, if you'd like to follow along as I read. 2 Samuel 18. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But good morning again. Um, So there's a saying, right? If you you want to enjoy someone, uh, celebrate with them. Right? That is, you find out what they like, and you watch them enjoy that, you participate with them, and you actually begin to enjoy them in the process as they're celebrating something. But if you really want to know someone, you suffer with them. Because it's in those moments, right, that all your pretenses fade away. And suffering, you see who somebody really is, because there's no faking it, right, when your heart is ripped open. And, and here we are in David's story and his heart has been ripped open. He's in the midst of terrible grief, terrible sorrow. And we just read the final few verses of a, a rather large section in the life of David, which spans all the way from chapter 13 to chapter 19 in 2 Samuel. And in fact, if you're looking for some homework this week, find a Bible app where you can just listen to these chapters read to you. If you go to the ESV one, you can find Kristen Getty's voice on there, and you can have that charming Irish accent uh, read it to you. And, but it'll take about 35 minutes. Uh, it's quite, uh, quite the section of David's life. And so here we are at the end, and we see David's heart torn open as he experiences the grief of losing his oldest son. But it's actually grief piled upon grief, because this whole period of David's life is marked by conflict, betrayal, exile, and pain. And you know, the picture on our banners, the picture on the series graphic is from Michelangelo's David, which sits at the Academy of Florence. And you probably know that Michelangelo, when he sculpted the David, he said that his intention was to create the idealized man. Well, that's not the man before us in our story this morning. This is a broken man, beaten down man, a man in terrible suffering. And this story is helpful for us, if for no other reason than to remind us that periods of suffering 
will come to all of us. Some of those periods of suffering, difficulty, wilderness will come because of things that we've done. That's very much the case, as we'll see in David's story. But sometimes it's suffering and difficulty because of things done to us. Sometimes it's suffering simply because we live in a broken world. But these periods will come. Despite what TV preachers will say, Christians are not exempt from pain. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, it hurts just the same, no matter if you have Jesus in your life or not. You might say different words afterwards, or maybe not, actually. (laughs) But it hurts just the same. Christians get illnesses and diseases at the same rate as the general populace. And while we believe Christianity offers us great resources in the midst of our suffering, it does not exempt us from it. And so when we read in the Bible stories of suffering, we should take note because we know we're all going to be there at some point. And so two broad categories to uh, what we're going to study this morning. The first, I just want to make sure we understand this story. I want to tell the story of these chapters, the story of David's suffering. But then the second thing we'll focus our time and our attention on this morning is what, what kind of fruit can come from these wilderness periods, these difficult times in our life? All right, so the story of suffering and then the fruit that can come from it. So first, let's talk about what actually happens to David here. This is a story of suffering. And the other main character in the story, besides David, is Absalom. Absalom is David's oldest son, his most gifted son. David's very, very proud of him. And in addition to his talents and skills, Absalom, he looks the part of a charismatic leader. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 25 says, Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. The next verse goes on to discuss that Absalom's hair was so thick and lustrous and magnificent that he would cut it once a year and then they would all weigh it because it was so magnificent. This kind of makes me hate him, uh, sort of envy. But the hair actually becomes part of the story or a big part of the story later on, so keep an eye out for that as we go. But, but Absalom's story is really, it can be told in three acts. In act one, we might call Absalom's revenge. Absalom has a sister named Tamar. In chapter 13, verse 1, we're told she's very beautiful. They have a half-brother named Amnon, another son of David by a different woman. And Amnon lusts for Tamar. He pines for Tamar. Eventually, he entraps Tamar, and finally, he rapes Tamar. And when it's over, he casts her aside like trash, She flees in shame and fear. And finally, she takes refuge in the house of her brother, Absalom. Now, David knows what has happened in his household, and yet he fails to act. He doesn't bring Amnon to face charges. There is no justice for Tamar. And so the text tells us uh, David is angry, but he does nothing. Perhaps his impotence here, his failure to act, flows from his own guilt. His own history of sin and violence. Remember, he took Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. We talked about that last week. He arranged for Uriah's murder when she became pregnant. And so seeing that David isn't going to do anything about this, Absalom bides his time. There's a sheep shearing festival. Think of, you know, state fair or something like that. 
And all the king's sons will be there. And so Absalom bides his time. He waits and he watches. And when Amnon gets drunk, Absalom kills him. Brother murdering brother, hearkening back to Cain and Abel. It also harks back, harkens back to what Nathan the prophet told David would be the case. When David introduced sin and violence into his house, Nathan told him that in chapter 12, verse 11, the sword shall never depart from your house. And here we see this coming home to roost, what uh, David had introduced into his house now beginning to play out beyond his own actions. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And David here is reaping what he has sown. Act 1, Absalom's revenge. But Act 2 would be Absalom's exile. Absalom flees after this, just on the chance that David would grow a spine and actually perform his role as a king and would act to stop this vigilante justice. And so Absalom flees and he spends three years in exile. And in chapter 13, verse 39, it says, The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, but he didn't. And again, we see David's inaction. He's stuck here. He was angry, but he didn't do anything to seek justice for Tamar. Here he longs to go out to Absalom, but he doesn't do anything to make peace with his son. Eventually, in chapter 14, Absalom is pardoned and he returns to Jerusalem. But even then, David won't see him. Absalom is not allowed into the presence of the king. Chapter 14, verse 24, the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And this goes on for another two years. Absalom is home, but relationally and emotionally, still very much in exile. If only David had known Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son, where the rebellious son eventually returns home, but the father isn't standoffish. He doesn't uh, exile him. He doesn't freeze him out, but rather the father comes running with forgiveness to his rebellious son. Eventually, Absalom presses the issue and is allowed back into the king's presence, but there is no real reconciliation. David shows a steady refusal to give to Absalom what God had given to him. Remember, David also had committed a murder and and for a much more selfish reason at that. There's a place where Jesus tells a story about a a king who's settling accounts, and one of the servants had run up this just gigantic debt. 10,000 talents, we're told. A talent was uh, a year's wages. So this is an astronomical amount. He never could pay, but he begs and pleads before the king, and the king mercifully forgives the entire debt. And you think then that he would go out with joy with the mercy that had been extended to him, but instead he comes across a guy who owes him a comparatively little amount of money. He strangles him and he chokes him and he has him thrown into debtor's prison. He shows no mercy. And the king hears about this and he's furious. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? This is Matthew 18. David's persistent refusal to give his son what 
God had given to him sets the stage for Act 3, which is Absalom's rebellion. For four years, Absalom plots and plans. He recruits an army. Day after day, he goes to the city gates. He listens to the complaints. He listens especially to those people who have their complaints denied. And he begins to sow the seeds of rebellion. He says things like, you know, if I were king, this would be resolved. If I were king, I would listen. If I were king, right, I wouldn't ignore you like David does. And in time, Absalom steals the hearts of the people. And eventually he stages a coup. He proclaims himself king. He sets out to assassinate David. And it says in chapter 15, verse 12, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And you see the illustration there, which is meant to picture what happens next. David has to flee Jerusalem in humiliation. He's exiled from his own city. It's called the city of David. And here he is on the run no place to lay his head. David flees to the wilderness with just the clothes on his back, weeping as he went, it says. And there's obviously a lot more detail to the story, but I think you've got the gist here, all right? That's the story of suffering, David's suffering in this period of his life. But let's talk now about suffering's fruit, because it's often in suffering that we find God, or maybe better yet, In suffering, it's often that God breaks through to us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the human spirit will not even try to begin to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Error and sin both have this property that the deeper they are, the less the victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. But pain is unmasked unmistakable evil. Every man knows something is wrong when he's being hurt. We could rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, not everybody's pain comes to us in the same way. Remember we said sometimes it's because of things that we've done. That's very much what's happening in David's story here. Sometimes it's because of things that are done to us. Part of that is David's story as well. And sometimes it's just the result of living in a broken world. And though we're talking about fruit that comes in David's life, I think some of these things at least can apply to you no matter the source of the pain in your own life. But in David's life, we see at least three things that come through this experience, three ways that God meets him, three things that God begins to produce in him in the midst of this wilderness. And the first is prayer. Samuel Johnson said, you know, the knowledge you're going to be hung in two weeks has an incredible ability to focus your mind. I imagine that's true, right? The knowledge that you're going to be hung in two weeks has an incredible ability to focus your mind. Well, David had lost focus up until this point, or at least he had lost his focus on the Lord. And we know this actually because we have David's prayer journal. We have it in the book of the Psalms. And for a long time, it seems, David had not written very much of anything in terms of worship and prayer to the Lord. Decadence, affluence, it seems, had deadened his spiritual senses. David didn't feel a direct need for God and so had become numb to God. It really is amazing how very little we have from David in the Psalms at his high points when things are going really well. 
But as soon as he's thrown back into the wilderness, he begins to pray again in earnest. He begins to write in this prayer journal called the Psalm. Psalm 3 is written at this time. We said it at the beginning of this service. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 23, the most famous of all the Psalms. David is on the run from Absalom. It's a, a long and hard journey out of Jerusalem, 60 miles or more to get across the Jordan to some measure of safety. This is a journey through treacherous terrain, dangerous territory, and they left in haste, and so they're ill-prepared. They didn't have adequate supplies. They didn't have provisions, and so they come to this place called Mahanaim near Gilead, and they don't know what kind of reception they're going to get because historically this has been a place where there are enemies. To David's surprise, his men are welcomed. They're given beds and basins, earthen vessels, grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, and cheese. David, on the run, in need, finds a balm in Gilead, finds the kindness of strangers. And so he writes in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod. And your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, even in Gilead. And in Psalm 55, David's chief of staff was a, a man by the name of Ahathopel, which is a good pronunciation exercise if you want to try it as well. Ahathopel. For years he had been David's most trusted advisor, his counselor, and also a really close friend. And when this insurrection became real for David was when he heard that Ahathopel had gone over to Absalom's side. Because that's when he begins to think, oh man, this, I might be in some real danger here. Ahathopel carries sway within the government, but also the sense of betrayal and hurt at his friend going over to the side of the coup. And so he writes this in Psalm 51, or 55, excuse me, my heart is in anguish within me. Fear and trembling come upon me, for it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it's you, my companion, my familiar friend. You know, sometimes you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. Before all this, David had all kinds of other things that he was tempted to rely upon, to trust in, position, authority, fame, power, wealth, the counsel of Ahithopel. But all these things are taken from him here in a moment. And so he begins to pray again, to write in this prayer journal called the Psalms because he has nowhere else to go but the Lord. Sometimes you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. And that's one of the fruits that comes in the midst of David's suffering. But the second one that we see is humility. Chapter 16 tells a story. While fleeing Jerusalem, there was a man named Shimei who saw them and he recognized David. Now, Shimei was from the house of Saul, whom you may remember David replaced as king. So Shimei lost, and his family lost a lot when David became the king instead of 
Saul. And Shimei sees David. He sees him on the run. He sees him uh, hurt and weak and scared. And Shimei begins to throw rocks and dirt down at David. And not just rocks and dirt, but he's also hurling insults and curses. Get out, he says. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. David's soldiers think, you know, they pull their swords and they think, we're going to go cut the head off this guy. David says, no. Chapter 16, verse 11, he says, leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Hear what David's saying? David's saying, this is God's sermon to me. However ineloquent, however offensive it may be, whatever kind of strange vehicle by which God is delivering it. These are God's words to me. Perhaps God will look on me and be gracious. Now, that's not a normal way for a king to react to an insult. It's pretty much not a normal way for any of us to react to an insult, right? But here we see David humbled. We hear him saying, God can speak to me even through a man like this, hurling insults and rocks and dirt. Years ago, uh, Tim Keller wrote a a blog post about how to deal with criticism. I think it's just called, uh, How Do You Take Criticism or something like that. Uh, There are a lot of good things in that post, but, but this is what he said at the very start. He said, first, you should look to see if there's a kernel of truth, even in the most exaggerated and unfair broadsides. So even if the censure is partly or even largely mistaken, look for what you may indeed have done wrong. Perhaps you simply acted or spoke in a way that was not circumspect. Maybe the critic is partly right, but for the wrong reasons. Nevertheless, identify your own shortcomings. Repent in your own heart before the Lord for what you can, and let that humble you. It will then be possible to learn from the criticism and stay gracious to the critic, even if you have to disagree with what he or she has said. The Apostle Peter says much the same thing. First Peter chapter 5, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. David learns this in the wilderness, in the midst of his suffering. And then finally we see David learning compassion for his son. How does the story end? Well, Absalom leads the army out against David. David has some troops that are loyal to him through all of this, but they're incredibly outnumbered. There's a few skirmishes. Ultimately, though, it's going to culminate in a decisive battle. And David gets his commanders together one last strategy session, and as he offers them the strategy for the battle, he says this one last thing before everybody goes, before all the commanders go out to be with the soldiers, he says, please deal gently with my son. The soldiers are shocked by this. Absalom has stolen his palace. He's stolen his kingship. He's forced David into hiding. He's trying to kill him. Can you imagine how this would have sounded to David's soldiers? David, we're trying to win a war here, and you're asking us not to kill the enemy. And we've seen this hasn't always been David's disposition toward Absalom, but here in the wilderness, here acquainted with his own need, here reminded of his own guilt perhaps seen for the first time the wrongs that he had done to Absalom, he urges mercy. He has compassion for his rebel son. John Newton wrote a letter to a friend. The friend was about to engage 
in some kind of very public dispute. And the friend told John Newton that he had the goods on this other guy and his opponent, right? He knew the weaknesses. He could pick apart this guy's arguments. He could even point to flaws in this other man's character. But John Newton advised him to deal gently, to be gracious. And he pointed back to this story. This is a little bit from his letter. He says, if you account your opponent a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, The words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. He goes on. He says, in a little while, you'll meet in heaven and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts, and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. And Nate Newton goes on to say, and if he's not a follower of Christ, even more the reason to show him your kindness. He is a more proper object of your compassion Then of your anger, perhaps God's kindness will win him through your kindness. Well, the story ends with David's army, though outnumbered, outmaneuvering Absalom's soldiers. Absalom has to flee. He's on the back of a mule. He goes through a thick part of the forest, and that beautiful head of hair gets stuck in the branches. And while he's In the process of untangling himself, Joab, one of David's commanders, runs him through with a spear and then throws Absalom's body down into a ravine. And the news of this comes back to David, delivered by a messenger. And David cries out, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. My son, why wasn't it me instead of you? You know, I don't know if you've uh, read a book second or third time through or maybe watched a movie that you've seen before and you know how it's going to end, but even while you're, you're watching it or while you're reading it, you're, you're hoping for a different ending. You know, I do that with Titanic. My kids like to watch that and I, I keep thinking, you know, I know how it's going to end, but I, I just want to say, go back for Leonardo, or at least Kate, make room on that raft. There's plenty of room on there. And she, well, I found myself thinking that way, reading this story this week. I, I kept hoping for more resolution in this story, even though I know how it ends. I wanted a more complete repentance for David and an earlier one at that. I wanted him to seek justice for Tamar. I wanted David to move toward Absalom in peace to show the forgiveness to him that David had been shown by God. That's not how it happens. There is such a thing as a cautionary tale, and, and this is it. This is a tragedy. It's not a comedy, to be sure. It's a cautionary tale, But there is something here, something honest and good about where David ends up, at least in his disposition toward his son, this final cry, O Absalom, 
My son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. My son, I wish it had been me instead of you. Now, in this story, it was too late. But when we turn the pages over to the New Testament, we see another father not freezing out his rebellious sons and daughters, but instead running to them while they were a long way off, like in the story of the prodigal son. In the New Testament, we see God not just expressing the sentiment, I wish it was me instead of you, but actually taking on flesh, actually walking among us, and then actually dying for his rebellious children. Jesus Christ comes into the world to die so that we could have forgiveness for our sins and newness of life. In Jesus, we see God saying, I'd rather die than let my rebel children die. The hero of the story is not David, but great David's greater son, as the hymn puts it. So the invitation to all of us this morning is to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus who lays down his life for you. In him, you can experience forgiveness and newness of life. Let's pray together this morning, and then we're going to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would meet with us this morning. Would you meet with us even in our suffering, if that's the place in which we find us? Some of us probably feel very much in the wilderness. It is true that pain often wakes us up to our our need for you. Sometimes we don't know Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we've got. And for those who are in that place this morning, I pray that you would show yourself to be sufficient and kind and merciful and show us and remind us that in your presence there is healing and restoration. And for all of us this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper, would you show us your heart for rebellious children? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.